Well, it is appropriate this uh, summer we're going to be looking at uh, just how we are all one blood and uh, one nation, one race, really, the, the human race. And uh, that, that's how things in Genesis start with Adam and Eve. And uh, then the Tower of Babel is scattered. And in the end, in heaven, all will be together again. When the Bible speaks of heaven, it, it describes heaven as an unbelievable place of beauty and glory and riches. Revelation 21 d- describes the New Jerusalem as, as having the glory of God. Its radiance is like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clearest crystal. Its gates are of pearls. Its streets are of gold. There's no need for the sun or moon to shine because the glory of God gives it its light. It's a place of, of safety. It's a place of purity. It's a place where, where all is well in the world, where, where God the Father and God the Son reign forever and ever. And one of the things that's often missed is the people who are there in heaven and what makes up the people who are in heaven. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 describe it this way. The new song that's spoken in heaven, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, the reality of heaven is that it will be filled with a diverse people. Not just Americans, or Canadians, or Mexicans, or Germans, or Russians, or Japanese, or Egyptians, or Kenyans. No, the death of Christ secured a place in heaven for every tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation. From the largest nations of the world, like China or India, to the smallest tribe in Papua New Guinea. There will be representatives from every people group, on the planet. And in some ways, the church is to represent heaven. It's to reflect that. The the church of Christ, see, it's not American or Chinese or Korean. It's filled with all sorts of people from all different cultures. And on a local level, churches ought to reflect this. To the extent the population of the city is multicultural, so ought a church be similarly multicultural as well. The sad reality, however, is that Sunday morning is often the most segregated hour in the life of any city, as there are white churches here, and there are black churches here, and there are Hispanic churches here, and Korean churches here, and Russian churches there. Now, there are language difficulties in in some, sometimes, but but sometimes because a church isn't open to various cultures, just caters to one, one slice of culture. We see that Rock Valley Bible Church. I have to do is look around, see there's minimal cultural diversity here. It's difficult. It's difficult. And one of the difficulties is because it's difficult dealing with those who are different. And nowhere was this more apparent than the church of Rome in the days of the Apostle Paul when, when, when Paul saw the Jewish culture collide with the Gentile culture. And when you had those, those who grew up a part of the church who grew up under the law, the chosen people of Israel following the law as much as they could. And on the other hand, you have people worshiping the pantheon of gods and living however they wanted. And these two cultures came clashing together in the church. And Paul did whatever he could do to seek to encourage them to live in harmony. Because with different cultures come various unique difficulties. And Paul's been addressing these difficulties. We've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Romans. He's been addressing those in Romans chapter 14 and 15. 
We've been seeing the last couple of weeks how Paul addressed them and how, how told, he told the church in Rome to overcome those difficulties. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. In your pew Bibles, it's page 949. If you didn't bring a Bible, my message this morning is going to conclude this section, which began in chapter 14, verse 1, ends in chapter 15, verse 7. And it ends with, really, the, the conclusion, the, the main point of everything that he has been saying. Romans fifteen seven says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The title of my message this morning is, Welcome One Another. And it's the same thing that Paul has been pounding since chapter 14, verse 1. Look at there. Chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, right? don't pass judgment on those who have different opinions than you. Don't despise those who have different opinions than you. Maybe they think a little bit differently than you, but instead you're supposed to welcome them. Don't make your differences a cause for contention in the body, is what Paul is saying. And regarding Rock Valley Bible Church, we should be a place of welcome, not a place of strife and quarrel that comes when you argue about your different opinions. And we see how Paul brings it down and finishes his argument, 15, 1 through 7. He says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. My first point this morning is simply this. Just bear with the weak. Bear with the weak. Verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. It's a a simple exhortation to the strong in the church. The strong are called to be mindful of the weak. They're to bear with the weak. And when it comes to, to making and keeping peace in the church, catch this, right? It's the strong who have this obligation to see that it happens. In fact, this word obligation is a debtor's word. It's the same word that Paul used in chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything. It, it's, it, it means that we have a debt to pay. Strong, you have a debt to pay to the weak. And the debt that you have to pay is to bear with their weakness. You know, it, it's a bit like chivalry when you, when you think about it. Um, where women and children come first. Where it's the men who go out to war fighting so as to protect the home front for the women and children to live in safety. So there's freedom for the family. It's chivalry where where men open the doors for women. Where men stand on the subway and let the women sit. Where, Where men walk on the street side of the sidewalk so that he bears the brunt of any water that cars splash upon the lady or that he might be the one to stop and gear them out of the way if a car comes close. That's chivalry. It's where dads eat last. It's where dads drop the family off at the church door, and so he drives around so he'll walk, and they can get in the church easily. It's, it's where husbands 
hold the umbrella for their wives, choosing to get wet themselves rather than their wives. So where a husband speaks highly of his wife, where a husband takes initiative with, with flowers and notes and seeks her well-being above all else. That's a code of honor, but that's where the strong is to bear with those who are, are weak. And that's entirely biblical. Proverbs 31, 29. Husbands are called to praise your wives. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all, is the words that a husband should say. The Bible calls husbands to lay down their lives. The stronger for the weaker. It's Christ. Love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Peter tells husbands to show them honor. That's the weaker vessel. It's it's true in society as well. Not just marriage, it's true in society. It should be the same way. Over and over in the law, the the law is given that that the strong might not domineer over the weak, but the strong are put in place so as to help the weak and the sojourner and the stranger and the widow and the poor and the orphan. Exodus 22.22 You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Psalm 82 verse 3 Give justice to the weak. And the fatherless maintain the right to the afflicted and the destitute. In the New Testament, James calls it pure and undefiled religion. The sight of God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That is the, the strong ones going to the weak ones and bearing with them and helping them with their load. And a similar thing, that's what we see here in, in Romans 15. It's the strong bearing with the failings of the weak. Now, now certainly I think in some regards, this statement here in verse 1 is broad enough to include all those all those um, categories of poverty and weakness and widowhood and orphanhood, and that those who are strong in the church should help those who are weak. It certainly does. But in 14 and 15, the context here, there's particular application. We're, we're talking about, about religious p- opinions that people hold to. I mean, generally people have these, this past religious heritage that often then comes into the church and we're talking here is about where people differ. There are stronger people and there are weaker people. And we're talking here about differences of opinion, not necessary to salvation, that aren't sinful, that aren't heretical beliefs, but convictions that people have about how the world should be and how it is that they should act. And in Paul's day, the issue was diets. The weak believers were the Jewish people coming from the law, and they'd grown up always following the Old Testament law in terms of their diets that they should keep. And, and they, they felt like they had to continue to keep that way of the Old Testament dietary laws. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, who understood their freedom in Christ, who were strong in that, knew that nothing was unclean of itself and they could eat anything. So Gentiles bearing with the, the religious foibles of the Jewish people about their dietary laws. The strong ought to bear the weakness of those who are weak. Bearing with the weak in Rome meant that the strong would be sensitive about what they ate. And about who they were around that they ate those things with. Because there were convictions about people who said, no, you ought not, ought not to eat those things. Another issue in Paul's day was the issue of days. Whether or not the Sabbath was binding. Whether or not the Jewish festivals were binding. Or whether there was freedom in these things. And the Jews growing up in the religious culture kept the Sabbath every Saturday. And they held to the religious ordinances where the Gentiles grew up in another culture never heard of some of these holidays until they were converted. And bearing with the weak in Rome meant that the strong would be sensitive to allow the, the weak to practice their walk with Christ according to their convictions. Because these are non-moral things like diets and days. No bearing upon one's salvation, but the strong should bear the quirkiness of the weak and keep peace in the church. And I think trying to apply it in our day, the issues might look different. It, it might be some strange belief that some people hold, like 
like some master deception of the government that people think is being involved, or, or some fact of science that people are disputing. Those aren't issues of salvation, but those are issues that we need to seek to keep the peace on. And those who are strong and understand ought not to despise and look down upon those who are weak. And maybe some quirky diet, like eating a pound of carrots every day. Right? Someone says, oh, and, and promotes all their health benefits, all this is. It's like, it doesn't matter. In the church, it doesn't matter. It means the strong bear with those who would like to push their quirky diet. There may be some family practice. Maybe some spiritual journey some family takes every year, right, to some place to have some kind of uh, religious experience. And they just promoting that. Like, well, that's wonderful for you. That's good for you. But you don't have to push that. But it's a strong bearing with those for a week. Or it's some speaking religious-like, right? Using Puritan language or, or praying with these and thous. That's, that's like not, but, but that's what they grew up in. They grew up in a liturgical church where they, they prayed to these and thous. And so it's, it's bearing with those sorts of people. That God is okay with us calling Him you. We ask you rather than asking thee and thou. He's okay with that. But whatever way, right, the weak are trying to live out their Christianity, the strong are trying to live out their Christianity, and their actions are how they've chosen to work out their Christianity. Not heretical, not sinful, but because of background probably, the strong are to bear with the weak. They're not to belittle them, they're not to look down upon them, they're not to scorn them, but bear with them. And the strong should show what a strong life looks like and slowly seek by grace and mercy and kindness and patience to lead the weak to maturity. In this way, the church is unified as it, as it walks towards maturity. And, and no, this isn't our natural response. I mean, when I hear something strange that people practice, oftentimes I laugh, really? They believe that? Really? They do that? Um, I ought not to. That's sinful. I, I ought not to do that. But I'm tempted to think about, oh, that's so weak, and I want to change them, and I want to change them now. I want to convince them of why they're wrong. But that leads to quarreling and arguing that Romans 14.1 is speaking against. Romans 15 tells, tells us to bear with them in patience and see them, see them grow. So you say, what does it look like? Well, we have a clue at the end of verse 1 where Paul says that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He picks up this idea of pleasing, using it several times in verses 2 and 3. Look at it there. Let each of us then please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here's the application of what I'm simply saying. Right, Not only should you bear with the weak, but you should please your neighbor. This is another way to say you should love. Be others-centered Look to their happiness rather than your own. Focus upon them and the well-being of them and not, not your own. I think a, a good example of this is, is birthdays. My birthday was this week. I'm not sure. Some of you know. Thanks for your greetings on Facebook. I appreciate it. And you know that too? Parker's birthday tomorrow. Well, mine was this week. It was Friday. I turned 52 years old. And on that day, it's very interesting, people sought to please me. In various different ways. I received some birthday cards. Um, my parents called me. I received texts from some of my, my siblings and from some of my children who aren't at home at the moment. In fact, I even received a text from my dentist. Look, look at how special it is. They're trying to please me. Hi, hello, Steve. This is Riverside Dental Center. We want to wish you a very happy birthday. 
trying to please me, but also through the wonders of Facebook, all of my friends, not all my friends, quite a few of my friends sent notes of encouragement. Many wrote, just happy birthday, Steve. And these range, I looked, high school friends, college friends, pastor friends, church friends, old friends, new friends. I received greetings from some people I haven't spoken with in 30 years. Now, we've maybe corresponded online a little bit. An old babysitter used to bait me, babysit me, sent me a happy birthday. A former high school teacher. I've not spoken with him for 30 years, 52, whatever, 30, 20, 35 years. I mean, we're friends on Facebook. I'm not sure exactly why we're friends on Facebook, but he was a chemistry teacher. I liked him, and he's like the only teacher that I have. A former administrator in college. Not spoken with her for a long, long time. I received birthday greetings from <clears throat> local friends, from global friends. One, one birthday greeting came from India. Some wrote special notes of encouragement, right? Just trying to please me. One, one person wrote, happy birthday. I'm thankful for your faithfulness to our Lord and to his people. Another wrote, so very grateful for you, my faithful brother. Um, an old high school friend wrote this. Happy birthday, Steve Brandon. I've always remembered 4567 LOL. That's right. I was born on April 5th, 1967. And, and I can't believe this high school friend of mine, I've not seen him for 15 years, why he would remember that I was born on 4567. But it's encouragement to me to, to think about that I have some small space in his brain for my birthday that, that he remembers. My favorite greeting was this, though. Happy birthday to my favorite pastor. That was my, my favorite. But all of this was an effort, right, to please me because it was my day. It was my birthday. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for their good to build them up. On my birthday, right, we had company come over to our house. My daughter came home from Bloomington, two hours drive to come and be with us. We invited from friends for dinner. I was given a, a special birthday plate. I said, today is your special day. I was served first. We had a great meal. Dessert was chosen just for me, the desserts that I like. And what I experienced Friday is no different than what many of you experienced during your birthdays as well. It's the day in which you are special, in which parties are thrown in your honor, in which people give you gifts and people seek to praise you and lift you up. That's the idea of verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. And when it comes to the church and dealing with our differences that we have with with each other, right? We should seek to please one another. We should view each other as, you know what, it's their birthday today. Maybe we can leave today saying happy birthday, right? Happy birthday, happy birthday. Because like, like consider it's everyone's birthday today. We want to please them and not just ourselves. And listen, especially to those who differ with us. And this is where it's hard. Especially to those who would see things differently than we do who maybe we have a difference of opinion about things, who are working out their Christianity a little bit different way. We need to please them, and we need to view them as special. But that's how unity in the church is sought. And Paul again gives a theological reason here in verse 3, where he says, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes here from, Psalm 69, the lament of David when he was in distress seeking salvation of the Lord. The psalm begins with a cry 
Uh, you just hear his distress. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I have sunk into deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes are dim with waiting for my God. And, and, and he's just longing for this salvation. And he speaks of having a, a zeal for, for the Lord. And he said in Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. Remember, that's said of Jesus as well. Zeal for your house, your temple, O God, has consumed me. So it's not that David is being uh, uh, punished for disobedience or his troubles are coming upon him because of his sin that other people are, are going after and getting him. No, he is, his troubles, uh, troubles are coming precisely because of his obedience to the Lord. He says, zeal for your house is consuming. Here it is. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. He was passionate for God and for His glory in His temple. He was consumed with zeal for His house. And yet those who hated God poured out their hatred upon David. The reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. I spoke with my mother-in-law this week. Um, and she experienced this. She has an unsaved friend that she sees about once a month in a, a sort of um, group a French-speaking group, and just this past week, something came up about Good Friday and how many people had that day as a holiday, which was disrupting this, this gal's plans. Like, all oh, these places are closed on Good Friday. I can't, I can't do everything I want to do. And, and my mother-in-law, in boldness, stood in and told her, told her friend about the greater day than Good Friday is Resurrection Sunday. And something ticked at the mention of the resurrection in this, this friend of my mother-in-law's, and, and she just went off. She denied the resurrection, denied that Jesus ever rose from the dead, called Jesus a poor, mangled body hanging on a cross. That he was dead, and he was certainly dead, and he absolutely did not rise again. Now, I don't know the context of the conversation, but apparently this woman berated my mother-in-law in the presence of other people. So much so that a Jewish friend who happened to witness what took place the entire conversation then when this woman was gone, mentioned about how insensitive she was to you. This Jewish friend absolutely doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah at all. And so she's calling me just to, how to respond to this woman. And um, meditating upon this verse of Scripture, I said, Lola, did you expect anything different? See, what happened to Jesus? Those who hated God poured out their wrath and venom and anger upon Him. They tortured Him. By nailing him to the cross. And, and we as followers, ought we to expect anything different? And, and my, my counsel to my mother-in-law was basically this. Is just, just ask her. Like she's so hostile to Christianity. But just start with a conversation. And say, I, I mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. Obviously they hit a nerve. i just like to hear why, why they hit a nerve. Because they're good enough friends, they, she, this gal grew up Catholic, so there's some Christian understanding there, and some maybe some experience that she might be open to things with a follow-up lunch. You can pray for her. But the good news is that even though they crucified and tortured Christ, is that He rose from the dead, He conquered sin and death, and that's our hope. But remember, we follow a crucified Savior who was hated and despised and abused. And all of God's followers ought to expect the same. David experienced it. My mother-in-law experienced it. I've experienced it. And if you've been a vocal witness for Christ at all, you've probably witnessed it as well. Probably experienced the same thing, that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me.
And of course, Jesus was the main one who received it all. He was our substitute. All the anger that, that came upon, came against God, all our sin right, fell upon Jesus. And that's the good news. By faith and trust in Him and the cross, we're made righteous and holy. And what Jesus did upon the cross, what we're called to do as a church, we're called to place the good of others above ourselves. That's what Jesus did, right? When He died upon the cross, when he, he took that suffering, He looked to our good rather than His own good. He looked to please us rather than to please Himself. And that's what we do. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. So think here about the context. We're talking about those who have difference of opinions, those who are working their Christianity out differently those with whom maybe there's some tension, some clash. It's with those people, even in the church, Christians realizing that the reproaches that, that might fall upon you, right, accusing you of being sinful, accusing you of being, or you don't have a conviction enough, or these problems that oh, well, see, I keep my diet, and you're not keeping your diet. You should keep the diet. And, and it says, you know what? Let it fall on me. I'm going to seek your good rather than retaliate in return is, I think, the idea. And it can be really hard. When people of the church speak against you for, and here, reasons that aren't even justifiable. Because the strong and the weak, as I mentioned last week, aren't, aren't like strong believers and sinful believers. These are both highly committed believers. Just that some of them are committed to more legalism that's like necessary, more works-oriented rather than the, the more grace-oriented. So they're strong and they're speaking clashes there. And even in that, the, the biting words can hurt. And Paul says, please your neighbor, not yourself. Take reproaches upon yourself. It's fine. And how it's hard, when Paul says, I know it's hard, let, let me give you a source of strength. And so verse 4 tells us where the source of strength is. It's found in the Scriptures. He says, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. As I thought about this, I, I thought about many ways in which I could could say my point here this morning, I could say you could find your strength in the Scripture. Right? How hard it is when, when, when people are angry, right? And it comes upon you. How hard that is. He's, well, find your strength in the Scripture. Or, or I could have said it this way. Find instruction in the Scripture because that's right there in verse 4. Whatever was written in former days is written for our instruction. Or, or I could have said this. Find endurance in the Scripture because it's, it's through endurance. Or I could have said find your encouragement in the Scripture because that's there, but... I just land on the last one because this is where Paul was, was aiming. Find your hope in the Scripture. Whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and encouragement of Scriptures, we might have hope. Now this verse would make a great standalone message, I think, for uh, a, um, a view of the sufficiency of Scripture. Right? The, a four-point message, right? Where, 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 where do you go? For instruction and endurance and encouragement and hope, you go to the Scriptures, right? When you're confused about life, where do I find instruction? Well, you find it in the Scriptures, right? Or, or when you're tired and need endurance, where do you go? You find it in the Scripture. Or when you're downcast and, and you need encouragement, where do you go? Well, you go to the Scriptures. And when you're depressed and need hope, where do you go? Well, you go to the Scriptures. Right? They make a great message. Four points. Instruction, endurance, encouragement, and hope. They can be found in the Scriptures. And you go to a bunch of Scripture passages. Showing us the case, we'd all be edified. But here's the value of exposition, right? As we walk through verse by verse, we've got to say, okay, so why did Paul put this here? 
Like, what is it unique about these things here in Romans that have to do with these issues? What Scriptures help you when dealing with others with a difference of opinion? Particularly what Old Testament Scriptures, Romans 15.4, whatever is written in former days, written for our instruction, that's Old Testament Scriptures. What Old Testament Scriptures deal with this issue? What Scriptures in the Old Testament give you instruction, endurance, encouragement, hope when you have conflict with people about differing matters of opinions? And I thought long and hard about this question because the answer was not obvious to me at all. I mean, to try to think in passages of the Old Testament that deals with matters of liberty, like Paul's dealing with in Romans 14 to 15, I couldn't think of any. I couldn't think of any. Maybe because there aren't any. Because the Old Testament days, everyone wanting to follow God was brought into the Jewish culture. Right? They were proselytes. They were brought out of that, and they're into the Jewish culture. There was only one culture, so you didn't have to deal with the varying cultures in the Old Testament. So maybe I was even thinking a little bit different. Because now it's only when the gospel goes to the Gentiles that it's different. Because God's people are no longer of one nation. They're of many nations. And, the, and so it's really only the, the New Testament where you start dealing with those things. But he says, look to the Old Testament where those things are. And you're like, I have no idea. And I was confused. And then I read on in Romans. And I went, aha. I think I see what Paul was talking about. Because if you just look down there, look at verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. In four verses, he has four quotations of the Old Testament. Every time has to do with the Gentiles worshiping the Lord. Next Sunday, we'll look at these more closely. But just, just right now, look at them. Every time, Gentiles worshiping the Lord. Romans 15, verse 9, quotes from Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43 says this. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. Or Isaiah 11, verse 10, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And I thought, you know what? These are prophetic passages envisioning the day when the Gentiles would join the Jews in worship. And could it be that's exactly the sort of scripture that Paul has in mind to give instruction and endurance and encouragement and hope? That God's vision all along has been for multiple nations to worship the Lord together in harmony. Working through cultural differences that that seek to divide us. And this gives us hope, right? That we're exactly where God wants us to be, bearing with others, pleasing others, because we long for the unity of the body to worship the Lord in unity. We're living the fulfillment of scriptures. And in that sense, we have hope and And in fact, even this is where he goes in verses 5 and 6. Look there, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is my fourth point. Worship in harmony. I thought about walk in harmony because it it speaks about walking in that way in verse 5. May grant you to live in harmony. To live in harmony. But I I decided on this worship in harmony. Because I think that's the picture. That's the picture of these scriptures. 
all four of these scriptures that are, that are coming up. It's the Gentiles worshiping the Lord together with the Jews. We ought to worship in harmony. The challenge of those in Rome were the cultural differences between the Jews and Gentiles were, were wedging the congregation so they wouldn't worship in harmony. But, that, but there would be division there. And Paul wanted everyone to live in harmony, ultimately, that you might worship in harmony. You know, I began my message this morning with a few comments about the cultural diversity of heaven where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be worshiping together with the Lord. And I think that's exactly what Paul's envisioning here with one voice worshiping the Lord together. Listen to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. And this is a time where this multitude appears in heaven and John has no idea what this was. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude so that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Everybody worshiping together the same message, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And and, and there you see the angelic beings along with His multitude all all worshiping together. But did you notice in Revelation 7.10, I think it probably passed, passed you by, that it says that they were crying out, with a loud voice. A multitude of people crying out with a loud voice. You know what that means? Unity. They weren't crying out with loud voices, as if everyone's with one voice, they were worshiping God together. That's what it says in Revelation 7:10, and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And did you notice what Paul says in verse 6? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one voice. It is united. It is cultural diversity coming together, worshiping in harmony. And that's why it's so important, I think, in my last point here this morning, is to welcome one another. Did you notice... I didn't see this until this week. I've, I, every week I've preached 14, chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, verse 7. I, I've, I've preached, I've, I've brought up chapter 15, verse 7. I think it is the governor on the passage. I think it is the, the message that we need to catch that says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And, and I, I, over and over again, I, I've said the point, right? If God welcomes someone into his kingdom, he's welcome in our fellowship. That's why on earth it needs to look like heaven. We need to, with one voice, worship the Lord. We're all believers. We need to worship the Lord. Believers in Christ. And let's, let's work out our differences in grace and unity. Again, that's not, that's not heresy, right? There, there's got to be a unity among us in teaching. And for some of us, it's going to mean submission to maybe something we don't fully embrace. But it means we're here together. We're unified. That's what worship in heaven looks like. That's why it's so important. If, if God welcomes someone into His kingdom... He's welcome to worship in our, our fellowship. And I've said that every week, but I, I've missed the last five words for the glory of God. 
And I think that's the emphasis here about the the worship. Look at verse 6. It's tied to verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glorifying is the worship, and the worship is the, the coming together and being in unity with one another. That's what I think Paul's getting at. He's getting at a vision of what heaven is like where Jew and Gentile are together in harmony. It's perfect in heaven. It's not perfect here. Okay? And we can long for that day when it is, when it's perfect, where all the races are together in, in total harmony. But we as a church should seek to approximate that whatever possible. And it takes some bending. It takes some bearing. It takes the strong bearing with the weak and gradually patiently helping them to, to lean towards maturity and to show them what unity looks like. One opportunity for that, we have fellowship dinner, dinner after church, right? That's, a great, that's an expression of our unity when we sit down together. If you're visiting with us today, you're more than welcome to join us. If you forgot food today, you're more than welcome to join us. It's a chance where we sit down in unity together. And in fact, that's one of the things that Paul chided those in Corinth that they weren't doing. They weren't eating the Lord's Supper in unity so we're going to transition now to the, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate here just two more times as we seek to just kind of focus our heart and our, our attention upon Easter Sunday, this Sunday, next Sunday morning, and then we're going to have a good Friday service, 6.30 to 7.30 on Friday, April, whatever it is. This is a good Friday. We're going to have a, a service about that as we continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper, just just focusing and and worshiping the Lord. But... But in the Lord's Supper, it's very interesting. It's not just you and God. There's a communal aspect to it because it's a, a community meal. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33 says this. It's a conclusion. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it would not be for judgment. And so the idea there is that, that they were disunified. Some were coming and eating at different times. He said, No, no, you all eat together. And that's why when we, we pass out the bread in the cup, we, we hold it so we can all eat it together. It's a sign that, that we're all unified here at Rock Valley Bible Church. And so I just encourage you, just to bow your heads, prepare your hearts to, to celebrate the, the supper with us this morning. And if you are a member of the kingdom of, of God, you're welcome at this table here. That's where we, we long to be. We long to be unified over trust and faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross and his work alone. The Bible also tells us to examine ourselves before we eat. So there may be divisions among us. There may be some of these opinions that have caused some quarreling among us. Just encourage you to think through your life about those things. Pledge to make them right. Repent before the Lord today. And so doing, feel free to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But if there's strife and contention, you're making no effort in your heart or in your, your will to resolve those things. Um, you know, perhaps that's something where the, the cup is being taken in an unworthy manner, in a, in a disunified way. I just encourage you, if that's in your heart and soul, just let the cup pass. Let the bread pass. But seek the Lord in this time. I love you what Will Weber said. This is really a pledge, a pledge of obedience to the Lord. It's an opportunity for us to say, yes, I, I understand and embrace everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus was on the cross is mine and I'm trusting in all that he is for us. Just take some time and even examine your heart.
You know that if you eat the bread or drink of the cup in an unworthy way, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And you don't want that. And so, Father, I pray again as we celebrate the supper, as we've done throughout this entire season of Lent, just to every week, just to vary things up in our worship so they're not rote, but to touch again the, the preciousness of the death of Christ. God, I, I pray as we eat, may we, may we bask in the glory of Jesus, realizing that for by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. You've saved us, O oh God, by your grace so that in the ages to come you might demonstrate, show forth the surpassing power of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That we who are dead have been made alive through your work. You seated us up and raised us in the heavenly places to be with Christ. So you transform us then to be your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God, we thank you for the salvation that you give by grace, the salvation that transforms. It's the grace of God that's appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us, God, to deny wickedness and evil. God, we might turn from those things and walk in righteousness. So be with us, O Lord. Commune with us as we eat this bread and drink this cup in obedience to our Lord.